After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everybody. This is Raghu Marcus and Mind Rolling Podcast alongside of my partner, David Silver. Hello. Hi, David. And today we have somebody special and somebody I've known, well, I won't say about going too far into decades. Tammy Simon. Tammy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be called special. I noticed everything in me lit up when you said that. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Tammy is the uh, founder of uh, uh, just a, an amazing publishing company called Sounds True. And I just want to say right off the bat, which she started as a young woman uh, and has, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment to have uh, kept uh, this publishing company going. And, and they, they publish not only books, but music and CDs and spoken word. And it's uh, it's uh, so everybody out there. It is an amazing treasure trove of information for everyone to get more balanced, more in tune, and uh, I can't more highly suggest you go to SoundsTrue.com and check it out. And um, now you know, Tammy. Um, just in knowing you, uh, Tammy and I really got to know each other uh, a little bit, and, and it's been getting to know each other a little bit more as time has gone on, but it was through Triloka Records, which we had a label, Krishnadas and I, and David was intimately involved with at one point in the mid-90s, and, and uh, Tammy was distributing uh, what we were doing. So, uh, so I do know that... Uh, uh, you know, the, and Tammy has a wonderful podcast, by the way, that you can check out. And, and, and I know that when you talk to people on the podcast, you really are talking to them and wanting them to give you their direct experience rather than any, any kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, so I, and, and, a, and a lot about w what transformed them. And so we do a similar thing on Mind Rolling, and we ask our guests, and we did this when we first started it. David and I talked about, uh, you know, how we grew up and what were the stressors that led us to, you know, to certain questions, and, and what were the big transformers, you know, uh, that, uh, that really got us onto a path, uh, you know, to what we would call happiness, because we were pretty unhappy people. So, Tammy, can you tell a little bit about your background and and what were the transformers that led you on to this path? Sure. 
Well, well, just uh, a day ago, I was having breakfast with someone that I uh, had never met before. We were just getting to know each other. And about an hour into our conversation, we both started talking about how within our families, we felt a little bit like uh, aliens that had been dropped from the sky. And we were wondering when our people from our true home and the mothership was going to arrive and beam us back up, please. Mm -hmm. And I, I start by saying that because I think I felt that foreign and really actually lonely uh, isolated. And it was uh, tremendously painful. And I had a deep yearning to connect with other people who also had some of the similar hungers that I had. And it was a hunger for authentic connection, a hunger to talk about ideas that really matter, to be able to voice some of my kind of weird falling into empty space type experiences. I, I really longed for that type of community. And sometimes I think back that the genesis of Sounds True, a company that's allowed me to speak and become friends with many of the great spiritual teachers of our time and visionary artists, that really it came out of this hunger I had to connect with people and to have a, a sense of being part of the human race belonging on on earth and you know i feel so happy that 30 years after starting sounds true i do feel a sense of belonging even here having this conversation with you i feel so grateful and fortunate to be connected with you and with the audience of people who care about mind rolling so really i would say the big stressor or transformer was that sense of isolation and that desire to connect and belong. You know, I wanted to um, ask you about that, but it's interesting because in some of the things I read that you've written, uh, yeah, the connection is important, but you also said something which at first may seem counterintuitive, but is very not so, which is your non-attachment to certainty and to being told, you know, life is this. This is the way you do it. If you do it this way, you'll be happy, you'll die fine, everything will be cool. If you don't do it that way, you're, you're doomed or damned. You just don't espouse that at all, obviously. And I'd like you to uh, expand a little bit about that. You know, just the, the difference between connection and connecting to uncertainty and there being not a necessary ground of being for every single moment. Sure. Well, the connection is an interpersonal one, and it's a feeling of open-hearted relatedness with whomever I'm with. So right now it's our feeling of listening together, attention together, uh, even though we're all in different locations and the listener is in who knows what lo location, I have this feeling of our hearts actually touching each other. And I feel that very much with you, David, and with you, Raghu, in this moment. So that's what I mean by connection. It's a quality of attention. We're right here and we're open. We're actually open to being impacted by each other. And there's a sense of, a, of being webbed together, if you will. Now to me, certainty is actually a uh, bizarre mental idea that I don't really understand because I don't have any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I just don't have any of it, actually. Uh, it, 
it to me is a, a type of uh, claim. And in the midst of an ever-changing, fomenting, transforming, uh, impossible to predict situation, I just don't see where there is to rest. So I'm not, I'm not resting anywhere. But our connection exists in that moving sea, not in a space of certainty. Hmm. It's, yeah. it, it's interesting uh, wow. because, oh, a few weeks ago, Bernie Glassman uh, did a uh, webcast with Ramdas, right? And uh, it's really funny and fun. And Bernie, right away, he started, he would like quote the Buddha and he'd say to Ramdas, of course, that's his opinion. <laughs> Ramdas would say, the Buddha's opinion? And Bernie would say, well, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know anything. I am not certain about anything. So, and anything that I say and anything that I teach, I always preface it by saying, in my opinion, I just thought it was hilarious and it relates to, to what you're talking about. Um, Tammy, talk a little bit more about you in terms of, you know, in your 20s and and how you, uh, obviously it, in, it includes, because I know, I think you were very young when, when you started Sounds True. Is that correct? Yeah, I started Sounds True when I was 21. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know the whole story, uh, but uh, certainly give us an idea of what it was like for a young woman. How did you even think of this? Yeah. Well, so I went to Swarthmore College and I thought I was going to be a philosophy major because I was so interested in meaning, uh, but was soon thrown into the religion department, which was the only place where you could actually talk about your personal experiences. And I started studying mysticism, but about halfway through my sophomore year, realized that really any mystic, great mystic, wouldn't get a degree in mysticism. They would uh, have to be closer to the ground than that. And I was fortunate that in my sophomore year, a gentleman on a one-year Fulbright scholarship from Sri Lanka was at Swarthmore, and he was teaching Buddhism and existentialism. And he had been a monk, a Buddhist monk, for the first 16 years of his life, and then became a translator and Buddhist scholar. And I became good friends with him. And... As my sophomore year ended, I decided that I would travel with him and his uh, wife and three children to Sri Lanka. And I would live in Sri Lanka and then India and Nepal for a year. And that I wanted to study meditation. And that was what I threw myself in completely. I went to these 10-day boot camp Vipassana meditation retreats mm -hmm. with Goenka. So uh -huh. this Goenka was teaching at Igatpuri, his center in India, and he came to Sri Lanka for 10 days, and then I went to Igatpuri in India, and then I went with Goenka up uh, to Nepal, and I did many of these 10-day retreats, and I basically gave my life at that age to the practice of meditation and to the idea that there was an inner science, if you will, an inner contemplative approach that would give me access to the answers, even though they weren't answers of certainty, they were inner knowings, inner 
confidences. And that, that finally I discovered a method and I wanted to do what I could to come back to the United States and introduce as many people as possible to different kinds of methods. It didn't have to be meditation. And I think in that sense, I've always been quite uh, universalist in my thinking because I've met so many people who have found value in so many different approaches. And even though meditation was the path for me, I wanted to introduce as many people as possible to simply inner reflection, inner contemplative practice. And that was really the seed that was inside me when I returned after this year in Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal. And when I came back, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I started praying. And I started praying really, 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 really hard. And a lot of what was fueling that prayer was a sense that I was a failure. I was a college dropout. I disappointed my family. Mm. Uh, I was supposed to be a, a successful academic. Uh, at least that was the thought that my family always had because I was so passionate about learning. And here I was, landed in Boulder, Colorado, originally came out here to go to Naropa University thinking I could study the psychology of meditation so I could understand what the heck had happened to me in Asia for a year. But instead, I was waitressing, praying to God, God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is. And I started a radio show on the local community nonprofit public radio station, KGNU. Mm -hmm. And it was just a volunteer gig. And I did it because I wanted to interview spiritual teachers so that they would help me continue the education that I felt I couldn't really get at Swarthmore. And also, once again, help me understand what the heck was going on post my experience in Asia. And as I was hosting this radio show, people would occasionally ask me if they could purchase copies of the program because they liked it. And so I had a little cottage business where I had a dubbing deck and I was making cassette copies of my radio show, selling them for $10 each, maybe would sell three or five cassette copies a week. And it was at this point in time that my father died. And when my father died, I received a small inheritance of about $50,000. And, you know, my brother said to me, hey, don't, you know, don't blow this all in one place. You should use this money to make more money. And I was like, well, that's a good idea. And then one of the people that I was interviewing for the radio show I was hosting, I shared with him that I inherited this money. And he said to me, why don't you put that money into yourself? And I was like, well, that's a great idea, but I don't know what to do with myself. But meanwhile, I'd been saying this prayer for several months and he just looked at me and he said, Tammy, you know what you want to do. Come back in three days and we'll talk about it. And when I left his office, I had um, an odd experience, and I, uh, I felt like I was walking slightly off the ground, like a few feet above the ground. Hmm. So the first thing was, I thought, this is really weird. I don't feel like my feet are touching the ground exactly. It's really strange. And then I uh, heard a voice, and of course, I don't know if it was an internal voice or an external voice. I don't really know what it was, but the voice said, disseminate spiritual wisdom. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to take this money and do. And that was really the beginning of Sounds True. Wow. Talk about a directive from on high. Gee, that's incredible, Tammy. 
and uh, and to this day, that has, is exactly what has been happening and, uh, to such a varied degree, as, as Tammy was saying. I mean, this isn't just Buddhist teachings, folks. Um, you know, you'll find uh, the path of the heart. Tammy's done a bunch of things with Ram. You know, everybody knows our association, Tammy, with Ramdas here, and w- and what I do other than mind rolling. And David and I have been uh, associated with him, you know, for many decades. And Krishna Das and Jai Utal and you know the path of the heart, which is something I want to get uh, at uh, with you a little bit later. Uh, but right now, talk a little bit about. The teachers, you know, the formative teachers that you had and your direct experience with meditation, which led you to believe that this was something that was going to help your life. Yeah, well, well, in terms of the second part of your question, I think I was just so relieved to find that there were methods that were self-empowering where I didn't have to sit in a psychiatrist's office and talk about what it, what, you know, how alien I felt, that there was a set of tools that I could use and that were contacting me directly with inspiration, uh, with something that I would call faith. I, I felt a sense of being held by a great unlimited field of awe and wonder. And th- as I said, there was this sense of empowerment that that came and i think that's what i wanted to share with people you don't have to keep looking outside you can actually have these freely available tools and look inside so that that's really i think what was so empowering to me about all all kinds of contemplative tools you know even even for some people it might be journal writing or movement-based practices like qigong it's like you can learn these practices and then you have your own portable toolbox it's inside you. Uh, and then in terms of the teachers that I've met, I, I seem to have, uh, I guess you could call it a nose, a sniffer. I'm always sniffing, <laughs> more so even than looking, for a uh, open, high, powerful vibration, a, a, an open frequency, one that is uh, filled with a sense of vitality and I mean, you could use a word like Shakti, uh, a feeling that there's no boundary in the room when you're with someone, feeling that everything's kind of melting into supreme, expansive, loving space. And early on, I noticed that when I met people like this, it nourished me like nothing else. And that I could start uh, relaxing and kind of tuning to where they lived, like a tuning fork. And that this was so useful for my own growth and evolution that simply by being in the presence of such people, uh, I changed and I, I, I wanted that. And so in that sense, I've been sort of like a hunter of those fields. And then how can I sit in them and allow my own cells to kind of catch on and, and change in the process? Mm. Yeah, you say uh, just a, I, and something you wrote, which really resonated with me that you know sometimes you can be in a bad mood or you're just lost or thick or in a vacuum i'm there some of the time and then somebody shows love to you or you show love to someone else or something just opens something up and it all changes you know for some people it's a joint for some people it's a book for some people like me originally you know 
it was the Beatles and Peter Townsend because I knew about Meher Baba, but I was I just didn't connect it with my life of being in England and being a mod and everything. And when Pete Townsend said that he was a devotee, a word I'd never could imagine being with the Who, when he said he was a devotee of Meher Baba, I got to admit, I went there and read every single thing that Meher had ever written. And, you know, sometimes these stories that people tell you open you up so quickly somehow. It's amazing to me that I can be in such a funk and then someone just goes, Meher Baba, I love him. And he's a rock star. And I go, all right, wow. You know, when you were younger, you're still a young woman, but when you're a younger woman, did you have cultural reflections? I mean, stuff in the culture that we all know about, you know, stuff that's out there, not Buddhists, not teachers, but just stuff that ignites, that catalyzes that wonderful feeling of awe, as you put it. Can you remember stuff that, that did that to you, really? Sure. Well, there were two writers who were really influential for me when I was a teenager, and one was Herman Hesse and the other was Alan Watts. And those were really the first two authors. When I read their books, there was an immediate recognition that they were writing about what I was looking for and that there were other human beings that had uh, survived deep depressions and uh, deep experiences of uh, feeling lost. And they had found something and that they had lived to actually share their recognitions and revelations and discoveries with someone else. And I thought of their work as, in a sense, a lifeline that was being thrown to me. And that if they could do it, if they could live and then contribute to the lives of other people through their work, maybe I could do that too. Maybe I didn't have to off myself. Maybe I could be here and make a contribution. And when I thought about disseminating spiritual wisdom, I thought, I want to publish and make available to other people the works that will have an impact on their life the way that Herman Hess and Alan Watts had an impact on my life. I want to throw out those kinds of lifelines for people. Right, right. Yeah. Herman Hess, my goodness, didn't he affect so many people? One of the things that always makes me feel good is just that mass thing that you suddenly find at a certain point in your life that millions of people have loved the same thing you've loved. And I, that means a lot to me. I mean, just hearing the words Herman Hess, you know, when I read Siddhartha and Magister Ludi, they truly did transform me, no question about it. So I'm listening very heavily to that particular two words, Herman Hess, you know, that's great. Uh, you, you, you've been largely, or not largely, but certainly you've allowed many people to tell their stories, direct experience stories that have illuminated other people because of the reality of them and trusting that this is the truth they're telling about their own lives. Could you talk to us a little bit about the value of storytelling? Mm. Well, you know, the, the, the company that I founded is called Sounds True. And I think there are different ways to tell a story. So I think there are some stories that aren't that transformative and aren't that interesting. And there are other stories that are coming from, really from the deep generosity of someone's being and their presence in the moment. And those kinds of stories sound true, meaning they carry a transmission or a communication where the aliveness 
and the experience of the story is encapsulated in such a way that it changes us. And, and so I think there's a, a depth of storytelling that's possible when we're right in the moment, when we tell our story and when we're speaking from our heart that has incredible power. You know, Tammy, this reminds me of something. Um, uh, here's You need to tell this story because it's just so fantastic. When you went to speak in India, and unbeknownst to you, His Holiness the Dalai Lama suddenly appeared. Can you tell that story? It's so, talk about transformative. Yeah, so, it, well, it's a little, it's a little different than the, than the way you're introducing it, but that's okay, which is I was told that there was a high likelihood that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama would be there, but it wasn't certain, but I was invited to speak to, I mean, God, it was, you know, uh, there were 30,000 people in the audience. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to stand up in front of 30,000 people and say something. So, you know, I was insanely nervous, but I flew all the way over and uh, was uh, deeply fortunate that that morning His Holiness did uh, come to this conference and I was able to sit uh, next to him on a couch and he immediately reached over to hold my hand and I remember I held his hand with both of my hands. <laughs> I might have squeezed all the life out of his hand. I was squeezing so <laughs> And uh, I wasn't sure when I was going to let go. I just uh, beamed literally from ear to ear and uh, squeezed his hand with both of my hands. And we just had a, a beautiful exchange for a couple of minutes. And it was quite a blessing. Mm. Quite a blessing. And that certainly fits the description you gave a little bit ago about being with people, beings like this, who uh, ha are not taking any space up, and there's it's a one-way street of, of giving. Uh, what the Hindus call darshan, which is, of course, what... Uh, um, this, this is just a, a, an incredible example of nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, and I think the, the key is our receptivity, mm. our openness. Mm. That, and that makes me think of another being who uh, I know has meant a tremendous amount to you, teacher, in this life beyond that. Um, and, and same with us, uh, and, and we've been connected uh, to him as well, and that's Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And... Uh, and what what came to mind when we were just just in this what you just said is he used to talk about the relationship of a disciple and a guru chela and guru and he used to say that it was an active relationship there there was a give and take and you know many many people especially on the hindu side and he used to he used to call us love and lighters back then when Ramdas and a bunch of us used to hang out with him at Tale of the Tiger and in Naropa. And um, he, so there was a concept that, uh, so the guru is just going to do everything for you and that's the end of it and you just sit around, you don't have to do nothing. And he was trying to really break through that concept and and that concept holds true also uh in 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 Buddhism, especially tibetan buddhism where the the uh the relation there's a strong uh relationship between chela and guru uh tradition rather 
Can you talk a little bit about and and your experience, you know, uh, me, just knowing of him and so on, and and uh, just tell us about that sure. relationship. Sure. Well, really, I met Chogim Trimper and Pache, not in uh, physical life, but through someone who is carrying on his work and his lineage, and it's a teacher named Reggie Ray. Mm. Reggie Ray came to the Sounds True studio to record a program with us on Buddhist Tantra when I was 39 years old. And in the process of recording with Reggie over a period of about a week to 10 days, something changed in me and I knew that Reggie could help me deeply in my meditation practice. And here, to your point of give and take, I also knew that I would do anything to help this man. I would offer myself in any way that I could to help his work in the world. So that was really interesting that I was filled with so much gratitude by being in his teaching space for 10 days and by hearing him teach the Dharma of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche through his own experience and through his own lens, that I was so changed that this spontaneous upwelling in me then offered myself in service to him and to his work. And that's been a relationship now that has gone on for over 12 years. And so when you talk about give and take, what I notice is that whenever I receive something of great beauty, especially of ultimate beauty, of a nature of ultimacy, that something comes forward in me that says, well, how can I help? How can I give back? How can I further this? I, I want to be part of it. And it's, it's a, it's a nat- there's a natural reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A good example of it, of course, is uh, Ramdas coming back from India the first time, and he was actually told not to say a word about Neem Karoli Baba. And, of course, that's all he could. He couldn't help himself. And he speaks of that today. He just could not help himself from sharing. And that is the, uh, you know, that that is such a primal motivation that once we get that kind of uh, support, help, love, unconditional love, whatever you want to call it, we can do nothing but share that. And I think that that's, uh, that's a very important uh, point in, in the relationship with a student teacher or, or Chela Guru. So um, I want to I wanna, uh, bring up one, of, uh, th- one a quote from Trungpa that you uh, strongly mention in, in something I, I, I read of yours. Um, and just to talk about this for a minute, ambiguity is called a seed syllable when it becomes a starting point rather than a source of our problems. I think it's a great quote. Do you just talk about that for a second in your own experience. Sure. Well, it kind of comes back to what we were saying about uncertainty. Mm. And can we relax without knowing things, without having certainty? Ambiguity meaning maybe this, maybe that. Can that actually be a seed syllable or our starting point for a creative process that comes through us where we can trust the spontaneous expression that's needed in the moment without a map, 
We don't have a map where things are ambiguous. We're not quite sure. So we relax deeply in that unknowing. And then there is spontaneous expression that we can actually have confidence in. And it's a way of being that's very naked, very unrehearsed, very uh, uh, relaxed and trusting in what erupts in relationship in the moment. Yeah, I read, uh, that's a beautiful, I I love that answer. I, I read something you wrote about mirroring, which would probably be quite helpful for quite a few of our listeners about you. You had the flu and you talk about, um, and it was kind of debilitating to say the least, and you talk about embracing brokenness as well. So you've got ambiguity and uncertainty. Now we've got brokenness. And that really got me. I love this piece. You know, and I'd love it if you just talk about that experience a little bit because it's very, it's very enlightening, I thought. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the, the great myths of the spiritual journey is the idea that we're always strong together, happy, uh, unsuffering, and that when we experience things like illness or brokenness, that somehow things have gone awry in our life. The journey's uh, gone, we're, we're amiss, we're off the path. And you know, I think this is one of the things that I loathe the most about a, a lot of the way spiritual teachings are introduced in the contemporary landscape by publishers who are functioning as advertisers who are always talking about the benefits of the spiritual path and using benefits in order to sell us on Mm. programs and products. And then when we experience our brokenness or illness or uh, collapsed states or whatever they may be, we, we somehow think that something's gone wrong. And in my own life experience, it's those states of suffering, actually, where some really important lessons are coming through. I'm really being asked to let go of certain things. In the case of the illness you mentioned, I think there was a lot of ambition that was being stripped from me. And I think that's something that continues to get stripped away in my experience. The idea that there's some future accomplishment that's going to finally leave me satisfied and fulfilled, that what's present and abundant right here and right now is somehow not enough. And I know I've had to go through all kinds of experiences of loss and disappointment, such that that ambition and sense of the future being what will deliver Uh, the great abundance of awe is stripped from me. No, it's right here. It's right here. There's nothing else I need to do or achieve. And so I think that uh, illness has been a a, a very important correction for me and has really helped me uh, in that stripping away process. Mm. Right, right. Got you. Yeah. Uh, You also uh, have talked, and I love this one too, (laughs) sorry to be psychophantic, but can't help it. Can't help it. Um, about the constant conversation. I mean, you've had conversations with any people in your podcast and so forth, and rather than interview, you know, uh, conversation. And then you extrapolate from that the constant conversation we're always having with ourselves. And um, I, the way you put it, much better than what I just did, uh, just really 
told me a lot about my own static. That's what I would call it sometimes, you know, and it's just something telling me, no, you're wrong, this is not right, you can't possibly know about that, whatever, you know. So um, what, what do we do with that constant conversation? Well, if our condition is one of uncertainty, how do we know in any given moment what's the next right thing to do? How do we know how to steer our lives? And I, I do think that there's this inner conversation that's taking place that's being informed by all kinds of intelligences. So if we ask the right questions and then we listen, and we listen in interior space, we pray deeply with our heart, that's asking the question, and then we allow for there to be a response. That response could come from another person, it could come just from the world, from a message that we receive uh, in an email or the number of birds flying across the sky or uh, something a friend says that rings right. We don't know, but it's being in this conversational space where we're tracking very close to the ground what's actually the question in our heart and then what's the felt response where we have a quality in our body that lights up and it says, yes, that's right. Yes, that's the right thing. That's the right next step. Where we're reading the signs of our environment and the feedback we're getting and the intelligence that's always being reflected back to us from other people and the world. So that's kind of what I mean by using a conversational approach to navigating our life. Hmm. Tammy, we're getting close to the end of our podcast here, but before we part, I want to ask you one more thing. I, you know, you, it sounds true, as I said earlier, represents a so wide an array of different practices and different methodologies and uh, but certainly the core, uh, you know, it are are many uh, Buddhist teachers and non-dual teachers. Would you say that's true? The core of sounds true. Uh, yeah, I might throw in some good psychological training as well. Mm. Yeah. And then on the other side is all of my buddies, you know, from Ramdas to Krishnadas to Jai Utal, etc. How how do you feel in personally any kind of effect from the likes of a Krishnadas and that practice? And how and what do you feel about disseminating that in you know in light of your own uh, direct interest in more of the Buddhist and non-dual teachings? Well, remember when I, I talked about the experience of meeting a teacher and I described it in kind of the language of vibration or frequency, if you will, and the idea of being in the midst of a great tuning fork and there's an appreciation that what's being emitted is the type of frequency that I want to get on. I want to get on that frequency, that level of refinement and that sense of no boundary in the being of that person. 
And I think the same thing is true when a musician is in an exalted state. When a musician's in an exalted state, then their music is coming from that place and you can just fall into the music. And the musicians you mentioned, I think, all have that capacity and that's what their recordings are communicating and that's the type of doorway that's then open for listeners to fall right through. So I think it's completely consonant with the spoken word teaching side and the publishing side of Sounds True. Mm. Well, we've appreciated it over the years because, uh, of course, we've been, uh, you've been directly responsible in, in terms of for helping disseminate what we were doing with Triloka Records back in the, in the 90s and 2000s. And, uh, you know, and you've just been a wonderful part of the greater family, Tammy. It's been fabulous having this association with you and all of the different kinds of work that we've done together and my real appreciation for Sounds True. And again, everybody out there, check out SoundsTrue.com. You can also find Tammy's podcasts there with various authors and teachers, which uh, since you're into podcasts, if you're listening to this, you will absolutely enjoy. And we have to, of course, uh, say a little mention for our our tiny little enterprise here, mindrollingpodcast.com. Please go there and help us through our merchandise and through our uh, uh, Amazon affiliates that you can buy uh, anything you want. You can even buy Sounds True stuff there, right, Tammy? Sounds True is, uh, sells their stuff, your stuff on Amazon, don't you? That's correct. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's a, a twofer. Go to Amazon through our portal, bookmark it, and uh, go in there and check out all of the offerings from Sounds True, and everybody will be a winner. And uh, Tammy, thanks again. Really appreciate you and appreciate you being on the show. And uh, we will uh, hopefully continue this conversation at another time. Yes, thank you. And I just want to say one final thing, if it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that we were going to uh, talk about the path of the heart, and we have been in, in an indirect way. We never got quite back to it in a direct way. But I just want to make a final comment, Yeah. because what I love about the work that you're doing and the entire family of people that have been attracted to the teachings of Ram Dass and Neem Karoli Baba is the heart-centeredness of it all. And I always feel that. I always feel this tremendously uh, yummy generosity and a field of complete acceptance. And it's the, the lovey-dovey heart thing <laughs> that uh, means the most to me, really, at, mm. at the end of the day. And it's where I um, so uh, cherish being connected with what you're doing, so I just want to say that. Uh, thanks, Tammy. Appreciate thanks. that. Yeah, I it's I feel the same thing, and and again, I'll say it again. Just it's really one beautiful family that uh, comes out of all of this uh, for all of us to share. So thank you again, and we will see you next time around, folks. Mindrollingpodcast.com. David, I will see you next week as well. Yes, au revoir, everyone. Bye, David. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Bye, Ragu.